Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garaholi, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, our guest is California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. He's running to be the governor of California. Now, Newsom and I have known each other professionally for about 15 years or so. So instead of getting deep into the policy weeds with them, and Lord knows the dude can go deep into the weeds, I wanted to explore a different side of him. Wanted to know, you know what he'd learned from his perspective from his time as a San Francisco politician. He also talks in depth here a lot about his dyslexia. Um, it takes him roughly an hour of preparation for every minute of a speech he gives because of that. And we bust up some facts and fiction about his childhood. Was he really born with a silver spoon in his mouth, like Republican opponent John Cox said on this very podcast recently? Not exactly. Next, getting in depth, but not in the weeds, with Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, welcome to It's All Political. Good to be here. All right. Now, we've known each other professionally for about 15 years or so. Hmm. So we're going to go to we're gonna look back at your career and, and, and life in the Bay Area and sort uh, of what shaped you. I shouldn't have said yes to this. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. You're already regretting yeah, it. Yeah, my regrets. Already regretting profound. it. Profound. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have said income inequality yeah. is, is the, as you said, one of the most profound issues that affect our, our culture today. And, and uh, as you know, one of the lines of attack of your opponent is... Um, is pushing the the line that as and he I'm said a on monarch this, and everything and as he, as he all said comes the, through <laughs> me and I'm accountable to every single bad thing that's yes. happened in the country, not just our state. Yes, yes. Besides that, he said on this very podcast, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Then we know the truth is a, a little more complex, uh, profoundly your parents, more complex. Your, your parents yeah. split up when you were two years old, largely raised by your mom Tessa. Substa- uh, exclusively, three jobs exclusively, exclusively raised. raised by my mother. Yes. I but love you, my dad, but exclusively raised by my mother. Yes. And your your dad was an attorney who had ties with the with the very wealthy Getty family. You're friends with the Getty kids growing up. Yep. But you kind of whipsaw between these two worlds. You, yeah. You're with your your mom. 360 days a year. Yeah. That's whipsawing. Uh, yeah. I have to define but the term. Yeah, yeah. No, but you were, uh, so you were exposed to these two worlds. How did that shape your your view? Because you, you, your mom one time, you, we might not have presents for Christmas, and then you're, yeah. uh, you're, you're on a, a European vacation. What, what did you learn about the two worlds? Yeah, I mean, it, how did that it, shape it, what it, you're coming at? My mother raised me. The older I got, then I had the opportunity as a teenager perhaps to, to experience, uh, you know, once a year or so, uh, things that certainly my mother couldn't afford uh, to allow us to experience. So to the extent that opened up my eyes to a different world, it certainly did. It didn't necessarily shape my world. My world was shaped by my mother. My world was shaped by a reality uh, that was present 24-7 to the extent it was an exception. Uh, the experiences that uh, I was fortunate enough to have because of a family association. Yeah. I imagine it's not completely dissimilar to others growing up that have other associations that are not in direct, uh, or are rather indirect contrast to the experience they have at home. It just happened to be uh, those experiences uh, around travel uh, were, were extraordinary, but I also had other extraordinary 
uh, relationships with people, doing amazing things that inspired me um, and enlivened me. My mother worked for Aid to Adoption of Special Kids, mm-hmm. the DeBalt family of people, intellectual and developmental disabilities. One of the reasons I'm still very involved uh, in the Special Olympics and subsequently involved with Best Buddies mm-hmm. um, and was involved uh, with uh, hiring folks when I was mayor with intellectual disabilities. So all those are just sort of proof points in life. One architect's life, your uh, your experiences architect your life, and sort of amassing of all those experiences create uh, the person that's in front of you. And we all have those in our own respective lives as well. And then the other thing that I want to talk to you about is your dyslexia that, that shaped that, which um, I become more and more intrigued with how, you know, after hearing you, and certainly during our talk here, there will be many facts and figures uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> disseminated by yeah I, yes, tend to, I, I like stats but, but it uh, how much time does it take you to prepare for giving a let's say a 15 minute presentation where you're where you how do you walk us through the process that that how you because it's very difficult for you to read, I'd, I'd say I mean I, it's not a gross exaggeration probably an exaggeration but not a gross exaggeration for every minute there's an hour Connecting to that, of reading, rereading, distilling what I reread, aggregating it, contextualizing it, and then presenting it. Um, I rarely, rarely read speeches. Uh, I had a speech handed to me, I wouldn't even bother to read it. Uh, I would have to practice and reread something dozens of times in order to feel comfortable with it. Uh, I would have almost an impossible time if it's on paper and I had to look up yeah, I would lose my space immediately. So the closest approximation to speeches that I read uh, would be a state of the city speech that I know requires some cogent uh, considerations, uh, particularly on time and the like. Uh, and those are on teleprompters, which are spatially easy to read and not lose your uh, your place. So it's profoundly difficult. It's still, I mean, it doesn't get easier. You just learn to overcompensate. Uh, but there's enormous amount of time and energy put into uh, the things that are unseen uh, to make it seem a little bit easier uh, when Do I make presentations. Is it easier for you if someone presents something uh, like orally to you? I mean, like uh, here is here is a, is that is yeah. That I mean, or, or one of the things it's better one, for you to. to so I always in my business, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I think our businesses became successful is they're visually. Uh, appealing, meaning I, I'm very visual uh, and the experiential, the sights, the sounds, the smells, all of that you're very sensitized to, particularly folks with dyslexia, I think, have a, a disproportionate sensitivity to their surroundings. They sort of feel rooms. Uh, there's a sensitivity to rooms, uh, but there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a sort of overcompensation of visualization as a consequence extending and answer your question. I can intellectually deal with an issue, but I have to see it firsthand. Uh, you're going to talk to me about homelessness, I got to get out on the streets. You're going to talk to me about a project, I got to go out and see the site. Uh, all of a sudden, then it three dimensionalizes it and it has completely different resonance and different meaning. So I spent a great deal of time walking around, connecting uh, to the issues to the extent I can, because all of a sudden, then those issues are made real. Uh, and as a consequence of that, I can grasp them, I can appreciate, I can understand them more deeply. Is, is that that will be a challenge when you're the governor of a huge state? I mean, yeah, well, you got to you got to get out. I mean, I look, I opened my office as lieutenant governor in an incubator mm-hmm. uh, in the South of Market in San Francisco, so I wasn't isolated mm-hmm. on the sixth, seventh floor of the state building with security guards and uh, and sheriff's deputies around me. So, uh, as governor, that would be my same approach. It was as mayor. I mean, there wasn't a Friday rare 
Was there a Friday where I didn't walk around the streets, particularly the Tenderloin? Used to take the cable car down to work and then walk from the cable car to the Civic Center, uh, past Civic Center into, in, into my office, drive my staff crazy. Fridays, everyone was like, oh, here we go. He's going to complain about panhandling and open drug use and uh, all kinds of related quality of life issues. But that that's a way of sort of expressing a way of connecting. And, and it's still important to me um, uh, and will continue to be if I'm successful as governor. One of, uh, of course, you're known nationally for uh, being the first, one of the first, the first major city mayor to, legal, to uh, marry same-sex folks. Uh, that's, uh, in retrospect, that's uh, a politically a crazy move, uh, <laughs> 36 days into your first term. And, you know, obviously, the, uh, you've gotten much national praise for this. This has become the law of the land. But <laughs> with, Condemnation along yeah, the way. Yes, a lot of condemnation. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. Still to this day. You got a call, I believe it was on election night, um, from uh, Senator Feinstein, who said that you helped George Bush, the backlash to that, which uh, helped George W. Bush win the election night. Yeah, I read that in the paper. And that's She didn't call. Oh, she did not call. No, she didn't call. In fact, I was with her at lunch that day, uh, her election day lunch. I actually spent sitting next to her. Oh, really? Uh, We were so sure of uh, the outcome of the election uh, for Kerry. Uh, so I was surprised to read that in the paper the next day as much as anyone else. But, was, but she didn't make a call. She didn't make a call. No. She, she wasn't upset with you then? Uh, no, I mean, we never, we nearly had it out afterwards. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I read what she said about it. And uh, she expressed nothing during the lunch. And oh, really? We had spent a lot of time together prior to the lunch. Um, but nonetheless, she had a different point of view. She was hardly in the minority. She was no. the vast majority of folks. And she was hardly the more moderate of the voices. There were some of the most progressive Icons in the Democratic Party that were even much more uh, vitriolic and much more uh, negative than just assessing as a pundit is what she did, uh, what she believed happened because of that issue. Others expressed very uh, sharp critique. Uh, the uh, what did how did that shape you? You're a 36 year old guy. It's your first year in office. Yeah, it was. What did that? What did that? And you, you're coming out with a with a major, uh, you know, a, a, sort of a, a very paradigm shift. And and you get this blowback from the from party leaders. Yeah. The people are supposedly on your same side. How did that change you? Well, I just I mean it hardens you. Uh, you you know you weather yourself through it. And you know I think it, it shaped a couple. Th- First of all, these are all the same people that were telling me universally the same thing: do the right thing, stand up on principle. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, we come and go in politics, and then all of a sudden I do that, and everyone says, "How could you do that? Why did you do that?" And not. You know, this way, should have done it that way, too much, too soon, too fast, uh, should have waited. Uh, and uh, so all of that, you know, that was difficult. I mean, it was not an easy process. I, I remember one of the most significant moments of all that was uh, watching CNN, and there was a scroll on CNN, right, when they started those scrolls, mm. uh, where it said Mayor Daly of Chicago said he would have done the same thing had he been uh, a mayor of Cook County. Uh, and that was a big moment for me. It was sort of the first public expression of an elected official, um, at least well-known elected official, uh, that uh, had my back. Uh, right. And I remember calling him, expressing 
great appreciation for that because he truly was the exception. And, you know, so it was difficult. There was a lot of soul searching. There was not just weeks and months of that. It was years of that because uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And we had a lot of uh, setbacks with constitutional amendments in other states and people pointing the fingers and a lot of experts, a lot of pundits and uh, a lot of members of the LGBT community, leaders uh, saying, you know, this is an abomination and who is this person think he is? Uh, and uh, and so there was a lot of, I mean, it was not an easy few years, candidly, but not just But did that give you... Uh the guts to, to try other things that were kind of maybe seen as a little bit out there yeah. or, or not, or, or did that? Well, you know, I mean, we were honestly, and, and I know, it, you know, people may say this is a gross exaggeration. It's not. Uh, we were worried about recall efforts. I was worried about um, legal uh, ramifications. Um, we actually reached out to two private attorneys, uh, not just our city attorney. He was an elected official himself. He had his own politics to address. Uh, so I needed my own counsel. I remember watching Schwarzenegger on Meet the Press and talking about, you know, there's riots and chaos and, you know, lawlessness and people are out there saying I should be arrested. And, uh, and there was, you know, sort of, there was some early conversations about a recall. A lot of my base, quote unquote, West Side base, my Catholic base, my father's world, the old yeah. Irish Catholic families, uh, they had a very difficult time with it. I, a uh, well-known priest who said the biggest mistake he ever made was quietly encouraging his congregants to support me, which, by the way, he shouldn't have been doing, but in the first place, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's uh, thought it always interesting. Yes, yeah. uh, so all of that was tough, and, you know, it was... Uh, you know that was, that, you know that that was truly the base to which I came out, the west side of San Francisco. And I think there's a lot of mythology. Oh, it's San Francisco. Well, hold on. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco wasn't ready for that. We right. weren't even ready for civil unions. We had just the dust was just settling on domestic partnerships with Salvation Army and United Airlines and all the consternation that was trying to be resolved with Leslie Katz and Susan Leal and Amiano and and uh, Governor Mayor Brown at the time that were trying to just work our way through domestic partnership. Uh, challenges so it was uh, it was an interesting time but it hardens you after you get through that after you survive that then you yeah you get a little more audacious I think you get a little bit more um, I think you get bolder I think you get a little more congruent more clarity more conviction uh, you, you, you tend to if you identify with an issue I tend to identify it with zeal and passion yeah. and, and conviction not just tacit uh, engagement and that sort of drove that it still does to this day that issue. What uh, other issue that came up? And right now we're in the midst of a hotel strike in San Francisco. I just noticed. I didn't notice yeah. that until I drove by. Yes, and uh, another first-year thing for you was there was a hotel strike yeah. then. The hoteliers uh, for their for your campaign supported you, but you Good. went and walked the picket line there. Did that yeah. was that like a spur of the moment thing, or what? No. Or, and how did that shape? It was it, it was frustrating. Look, the hoteliers did an enormous amount for me, independent expenditures and others. This is back before Citizen United. Anyone who believes Citizen United has created uh, a problem with money and politics should pause and consider the fact that money and politics was a big problem even before Citizens United. But uh, that said, it. Was, they were proponents of my candidacy in the union itself, led by Mike Casey, mm -hmm. uh, was vehemently opposed. I say yeah. vehemently because they were aggressively opposed to my yeah, candidacy for, Matt for mayor and uh, disappointed indeed. And yet uh, a very short period of time after I got elected, there was a dispute and there was a conversation I had with some of the hoteliers, a couple that had flown in from out of state, one from out of the country, out of the UK, and made some flippant comment to me that, you know, this is a, in essence a P&L. Uh, it's just a unit uh, in their vast portfolio. 
And I remember that sort of stinging comment. And it sat with me. And I couldn't get over it. Because for me, it wasn't about a unit. It was about my city. It was about our reputation. It was about our values. It was about the people that work there, not just visit there, certainly not just the investors. And that was literally the trigger uh, where I sort of shifted my engagement with some of the key uh, leaders at the hotel council and some of the key managers and HR directors that had assembled in the city and saying, you know what, I get why you locked out your employees for a couple of weeks because they had uh, gone out on strike for a couple of weeks. Tit for tat, I understand that. Uh, but you're now having a conversation with me, giving me a heads up that you want to continue the lockout. And I said, we're getting close to the holidays. You don't need to do that. You made your point. This is not about Mike Casey. It's about the workers, and it's about their being used in this debate in a way that can really hurt their lives and their families' lives. They said, no, we're going forward. I said, please don't do that. They said, we're going to do that. I said, don't do that. Uh, and they did, and I said, fine. You leave me no choice. I'm with the workers. And I walked that picket line with the workers. Um, and uh, I pushed back. And it's a point of emphasis. I, I want to reinforce this. You can't buy me. Uh, no matter, in fact, you think you can buy me? I promise you, uh, given the opportunity, I will prove to you you're wrong. Uh, you know, I'm grateful for support, uh, but it doesn't change my point of view. What changes my point of view is facts and conditions. And there's a default. My default is, at the end of the day, uh, social justice, economic justice. And that's why I was proud to walk the picket line. And I thought it was the right thing to do, even though mayors aren't supposed to do that. Uh, And uh, you necessarily are tipping your hat in a negotiation. It didn't make it easier to come to um, an agreement. But I felt compelled. Well, I mean, and that's, you know, one of the concerns now, I think, with you with the sum in Sacramento would be uh, you, you got the, the nurses with the SEIU, the Labor Federation. How are you going to push back, you know, same thing? This, uh, yeah, meaning the same point. If you think you got me, look at my record. Oh. You know, I'm going to call balls and strikes is my point. Um, if someone comes in just because they write a big check thinking all of a sudden I'm going to agree with everything uh, they tell me to agree with, they're just simply wrong and they have scant evidence to base that um, um, assertion. Uh, and I think that hotel example is a substantive proof point because, again, let's remind you, it wasn't just the mayor's race that hotels were supporting. They supported my initiative, uh, Care Not Cash. They supported many That's other right. initiatives yeah. and my previous campaign supervisor. I didn't enjoy uh, turning my back, but I had to because they turned their back on the workers. And you can't hurt poor folks that are struggling to make ends meet, uh, disproportionately women and minorities, uh, and think that somehow, uh, just because you supported me, that I'm going to roll over and be complicit uh, in the pain that's caused on folks that I think uh, really matter and I have an obligation to care about. One of the raps on you when you were uh, mayor was that uh, you know the policy better than anybody. But the schmoozy part of politics, you can, you can certainly give a, a great speech in front of and connect with, with voters, but the schmoozy kind of uh, working uh, the political game, talking to your uh, fellow supervisors uh, or the supervisors, that was uh, a weak point you were criticized for. Uh, do, you think that's, do you think that's changed? And what, do you, what have you done to try and prepare yourself in, instead of dealing with you know, seven or eight the supervisors, nine supervisors, 11, whatever it is these days, <laughs> you, yeah. uh, 120 legislatures, legislators in Sacramento. What have, what have you been doing to, to, to prepare to, to deal with it? Pick up the phone? I've got very close relationships with the legislature. I've developed them over not just seven years, 
probably 20 years. Uh, Tony Atkins being a proof point I knew when she was on the city council in San Diego. She's now the head of the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked on homeless policy many, many moons ago. Many of the San Francisco electeds are now in mm-hmm. key positions of influence and are f- close friends. Uh, Phil Ting, I pointed to uh, uh, a important body as our assessor recorder in San Francisco. And I've got a very close with uh, other electeds, not least of which are a senator and assembly member uh, who are very close, Scott Weiner, who I've worked with on so many issues back to his days when he was on the Democratic Central Committee before he was even a supervisor, uh, et cetera. So my only point of emphasis here is uh, strong relationships uh, and, yeah, a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of, of experience with the board. But I want to remind you something you don't need to be reminded of, but it's an important point. You had the master of all elected officials, the guy who reinvented the art of schmoozing, um, one of the greats uh, that happens to still be in our midst, Willie Brown, came from the assembly. His capacity to do the impossible led to term limits in the state of California. He came to the city with those same supervisors that I had to work with, and they almost recalled Willie Brown. Uh, He called one of them a drunken little dwarf. Uh, another one of them uh, almost got in a fistfight with him in his office uh, and then started to appoint people when he was out of town. Uh, you know, he had a difficult time. Uh, you, you had uh, Mayor Lee, who literally, God rest his soul, internalized that strife so much he's literally not here today. In some respects, I think I did quite well with some of these folks. They're, uh, they're a difficult bunch, and I don't think it gets more difficult than some of these uh, uh, that have been around San Francisco politics. So I, I feel more than prepared and, frankly, wildly enthusiastic about the breath of fresh air uh, that are some of these enlightened leaders in Sacramento. Wow. Okay. We're going we're to clip and frame that one. Okay. <laughs> the uh, What about Republicans? You've not had to deal with a lot of Republicans, uh, you know, certainly in San Francisco, but who are you who on the Republican side? Are you close I went, to and what you, first thing I did when I became lieutenant governor is went out on a bipartisan trip with, uh, I think, 13, 14 Republicans and two Democrats to Texas. Oh, your Texas trip. Yeah, it, which is sort of a proof point of my willingness to reach out across the divide, seek solutions, ideas, and uh, wherever I can find them. I, I'm not ideological from that prism. I want good ideas wherever they could be sourced. And, uh, you know, married in a big Republican family, I... I um, I, I was accused by those same members of the board that thought Willie Brown was a right-wing conservative who needed to be recalled uh, of uh, being a quote-unquote compassionate conservative uh, for most of my term as mayor, which is the great irony of this statewide race. No one would believe that. Certainly my opponent would never believe that uh, in the race for governor. So, um, you know, I, I look, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in the individual. I want people, I want to, I'm aligned with people of character uh, and integrity uh, intellectually curious. You don't have to be intellectually superior. You don't have to be intellectually curious. Uh, and wherever those folks lie, whatever their party identification is, those are the folks that I tend to be attracted to and will spend a lot of time with, regardless of party. And we're, we're about the same age. I think you have a birthday coming up next week, 51. Uh, we go through life. We have regrets, professionally and personally. When you look back in San Francisco, what are what do you regret Professionally, personally, what do you learn? No, I think. I mean, what did you learn from? In more broad strokes, it connects the previous dot about relationships with with members of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Uh, you know, there is some truth to that. Look, I'm not I'm not belittling those relationships, um, but I was I, I was promoting some real change. You know, on, on homeless policy, on 
uh, on, on our uh, drug and alcohol treatment strategies, on, on, on housing policy, Hope SF and other things, not just healthcare policy and other um, But I do agree, if there's one lesson, it's the old adage, that, that great old African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. Um, there is truth uh, that I definitely learned that lesson, uh, that I, if I could go back on so many of these issues, we just made it more difficult for ourselves by not establishing a, an engagement um, that uh, was more thorough uh, and uh, more uh, nuanced to get support uh, internally. Uh, and what's so a, what's that an example of one of those issues that you would have I, I, gotten lot, together? We, we tended to go... Uh, I'm not sure we would have ended up on the same side. We just made it more challenging. So yep. we ended up having to do ballot initiatives. There are probably seven or eight ballot initiatives that I did that were unnecessary uh, if we had just gotten the support of the members of the board. I'm not sure we could have. I'm just saying, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, Community Justice Center is a good example of that, um, which is, by the way, something the city should be very supportive of and enthusiastic about. And by the way, should have four or five of them to deal with some of the quality of life issues out on the street. That was an issue that stubbornly, for whatever reason, got caught up in politics. Colin Harris and I were promoting it, uh, and yet we didn't get a lot of buy-in at the board. There was no reason in hindsight we shouldn't have. Uh, and I imagine that was about stubborn personalities. It was about all of us already having well-established in our camps. Um, you know, we had trouble with getting free internet in San Francisco. I mean, there was one supervisor who, in the meeting, there's minutes of the meeting uh, from the company involved, who said, I don't care if it's a good idea or not. I will never let that mayor get credit for it. Now, I shouldn't have allowed that to happen. Uh, maybe that's on me. Maybe that supervisor, I don't know, he's the same supervisor who voted against the Hope Six um, uh, program. But, you know, those kind of things, I think maybe if I had another go at it, another angle, that, that's, just, that's just an abandonment of any principle. That's pure politics. But, you know, politics is a two-way street. I gotta take some account for that. So those are the kind of things I regret substantively that go deep to policy over the years, um, you what know, would you, where what things would you have are much more challenging. I just, you know, went back to your point. I mean, just maybe more time, more rational. I think the key is give people credit, even if they don't, even if they're not involved in something. Um, you know, that was your a great idea. They, they, thank you. And all of a sudden, I've noticed, you know, if, even if you just make it up, Willie was great at that. He used to give people credit for things that you're like, really? I didn't even know I thought about that. And that was, he's a master politician. Still didn't work in many cases, but there's a, you know, there's what is the old saw? I don't know who, which elected official said it, and some fancy one. Yeah, said there's no limit on what you're capable of doing when you don't care about who gets credit. Yes. There's real truth to that. I, and when you're young, you're, you're running so fast, you, you don't think in those terms. The older I get, the more those things really don't matter to me as much at all. And I just feel more prepared now with those relationships, a different pace. Sacramento is profoundly different than just a few key supervisors. Right. Uh, it, it, and Democratic, Republican uh, aspects to me is enlivening, interestingly. Uh, it, it, I actually like a diversity of opinion. I think it's healthy. Uh, so I just think I'm better prepared, and all of those are lessons over the course of the last few decades. You're also, unlike would be if, if elected any other governor and that you're very close to people in the tech community uh, how do they influence you what what do you get from them uh, entrepreneurial spirit and audacity they think exponentially not linear uh, in, in linear terms uh, they think in terms of changing lives of billions of people not millions or even hundreds uh, of thousands uh, I love that there's a disruptive uh, quality of some of these folks, yep. and there's a beginner's mind. 
they don't know what they don't know, so they're weak. Uh, they're willing to do uh, things that most of us wouldn't do because they're not burdened uh, by other people's preconceived notions uh, or assessment of situations. Uh, and so, you know, they don't have to climb the mountain to see on the other side. They tend to see through it, and that enlivens me. But at the same time, they're also very dubious about government. They're also very dubious about organized labor. They think this is, you know, uh, the, the, the most codified, calcified uh, industries and institutions around. How do you reconcile those those two yeah, forces do, in, your, in, your, in your life? Some do, some Gen- don't. Generally speaking, I mean, yes, yes. You know, very close with Mark Benioff's godfather and my daughter. Uh, Mark doesn't feel that way, mm-hmm. and he's one of the most enlightened yes. tech leaders out there. So, and, you know, I think there's... We, we tend to categorize people too broadly. Uh, frankly, the vast majority of I know personally, very close, uh, don't necessarily feel that way, but they may be represented by, um, uh, by that point of view in terms of their uh, broader uh, advocacy as, as an industry writ large, not as individuals. Uh, but that said, yeah, people, these are, these are uh, folks that don't believe incumbent capitalism. Uh, they believe in innovation capitalism. Um, and so that comes not at the expense of quote-unquote labor, but incumbents more broadly um, and, uh, and old rules and regulations that they think get in the way of innovation uh, in that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that's the real friction is where you stand on that. Are you for depreciation schedules or are you for R&D tax credits? I mean, that, the answer to that is sort of manifested in where your bias is in terms of your, your framework. Are you sort of for the chamber protecting what the trophies on the wall, or are you for, uh, you know, the little guy that's trying to, you know, punch above their weight and break through uh, with an app to completely change an industry and make it more customer-centric? And you, you said the other day that perhaps the cure to the DMV is is from the tech, could no be question. from the tech community. No question. Where, where could you, where, where I mean, do you plan to do I that? mean, just imagine, you know, we can go on a journey together by finding some of the best and the brightest leaders in the retail space that are thinking about the future of retail. I mean, thinking about some of the, the, the folks at Apple uh, that are in the future, that, that are in that space 24-7, helping us design a 21st century experience that is increasingly digitized, that's not, um, that doesn't require us to go into a box and, and wait in line. Um, imagine, you know, customer service organizations like Zappos, I'm being hypothetical here mm-hmm. in the spirit of your question, you know, that are, that are consumed by a customer service interface, uh, reimagining that interface at the Department of Motor Vehicle, a tech-savvy uh, DMV leader that leans in and, and truly looks at every function and says, why isn't this function yet digitized? Uh, that is enlivening to me. I mean, we're still in a, in a, in a 20th century model. Uh, it makes no sense. And by the way, it will only get worse as we try to enroll more of these folks in the Real ID program in the next oh, two yeah, years. Yeah, so yeah. something big has to happen. I'm committed to trying do, to do that. Is there anyone in particular you've talked to and said, could, could you actually convince someone from the tech world? Can they say, hey, come on. Uh, you want to run way, the DMV? Those weren't figurative examples. Those were quite literal. Oh, really? Uh, okay. I've had people come to me uh, with folks they've identified saying, you need to talk to this person who lives in this space and should advise you at least on reconceptualizing yeah. uh, uh, the retail experience that is the most, um, um, well, at least symbolic and substantive uh, interface between taxpayers and government, and that's the DMV. Um, and that intrigues me. It's not the solution, but it allows, I think, us to incorporate different points of view that uh, I think are more relevant to the world that we're living in. Look, everybody's been conditioned by Amazon 
uh, and yet we're still filling out forms in triplicate in some cases at the DMV, that's not going to work for much longer. You have a, a very complex relationship with our current governor, Jerry Brown. Childhood friend, family friend from your, for life, ran against him briefly for governor, <laughs> and you, you ticked him off a little bit in your first days of, of uh, lieutenant governor. Yeah. But that seems to have mellowed. You, you, yeah. 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 Yes. Over that economic development plan. Yes, yeah. yes. Visiting Texas with those Republicans. Yes. Out there. Was... <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, has he said to you, uh, hey, I'm only a phone call away, and would you yeah. make that call? No, consistently. I, I, Talked to him 10 days ago about commutations, about bills he was thinking of signing, vetoing. I've sat down with him on multiple occasions recently. So the answer is, no, that, that's happening. That's not that's even happening. open to any question. Okay. Absolutely. Happening they've now. Been, and they've been unbelievably open. responsive. And he's he's open to 100%. talking. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, not, you're, and, and, you're and more importantly, it. not just him. Uh, his staff has been extraordinary across the board, without exception. Um, what uh, did you learn from your time? Is it when you first uh, were approaching the job as lieutenant governor? Of course, you famously said, "Well, maybe this should be a, shouldn't even be an elected position. Maybe it should be a, should, like a package deal." Should be put. I do believe it should be reformed. I haven't changed my position on that. Okay. I feel very strongly about that. In fact, what did you learn about Sacramento? Even though you're here in San Francisco a lot, from your eight years as lieutenant the, governor, uh, a different pace. Pace is so much slower. I came in with a more quixotic um, pace desire to sort of tackle lots of issues in real time. That's the mayoral mindset uh, 24-7. It's very seasonal up there. Uh, There's the pace, the ebb and flow of sessions and cycles. And and so it's just uh, the pacing was, to me, the most difficult transition. Really? Okay. And, you know, you sort of, you learn to adjust expectations in that respect. But uh, there's a cause and effect decision making and manifestation of those decisions in real time that um, that are very real and visceral at the local level that do not exist as you move up into uh, state office. And how would you how would you adjust to that? I mean, I have. I mean, I have substantively. Yeah. I mean, the economic plan was a demonstrable example of that. I felt a great sense of urgency. 2010, $27 billion budget deficit, 12.4% unemployment rate, 27. Um, you know, the $27 billion for me was, you know, that we just couldn't cut our way out of there or tax our way out of there. We needed a growth agenda. And so I thought, all right, it's about best practices. Uh, it's what I do in my business. I want to learn from our competitors. And so I wanted to seek those uh, ideas and, and, uh, and, and be inspired by what was working, what's not, and try to incorporate it in our California vision. Um, and, and for the governor, that was, you know, we'll get to that, but I'm triaging the state. We're in crisis. Our bond rating was just lowered. Uh, we've got payroll considerations, cash flow concerns. Uh, and so different pacing, different prioritizations, um, and in uh, different expectations in terms of who are, are controlling those levers of power. And, and I can assure you the lieutenant governor um, is not well positioned to be uh, in the driver's seat as it relates to those levers of power. And I learned <laughs> what, that the hard way. You learned that the hard way. Yes. Which, as the next lieutenant uh, governor. Ed Hernandez told us the other day that he has talked to you about wanting to change that relationship. Or you've talked to him about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I'm, I would love it. I think it's critical for the institution. Um, talk to Lenny and Lenny. And Lenny as well. As well. Would, yeah. How would you want to change it? Oh, I should, we should run as a ticket. The office should run as a ticket. I mean, that's the best practice across the country. It's not exclusively. Uh, the only best practice, but I think it is the best practice. And I think that would allow the governor uh, to appoint someone uh, that can meet the moment. Uh, for example, uh, for me, you know, if I had 
my choice and I could have a lieutenant governor that, you know, had an expertise around the issues of, of, of globalization and technology, the future of work, new work styles, new arrangements, workforce development, uh, sort of meet that moment, someone who was savvy in that space that could run some of those efforts, that would be an ideal uh, candidate as an example. That'd be like a, a Gavin Newsom. A uh, version, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a mini, variant, like a, a mini me type well, of sounds like but, Yeah, but just, you know, but someone, or, or whatever it may be, I yeah. mean, maybe just, you know, someone who's an expert in, you know, the resource management and yeah. uh, can meet this moment as it relates to natural disasters and, and preparation or yeah. expert in interoperability, whatever, you, you sort of contextualize what you're trying to prioritize as an administration and extend that administrative uh, framework and focus to your lieutenant. You said the other day when you were at the Chronicle that you have, thir- you have, you have groups of people right now looking at About all 30. sorts of yeah, In fact, uh, it is policy. 30, to be exact, uh, which he hates me mentioning because yeah. everybody calls and says, why am I not on that 30? Yeah. I've actually created <laughs> problems. 31 for people, I thought. Yeah, no, well, there's, not, there's about 300 so, people, but there's 31, uh, 30 groups. Yeah. 30, 30 groups yeah. on working on various issues. Yeah. And 31, 300 people. 300 plus, yeah. And 30 people just working on, 31 people just working on health care. Yeah, we have a, that's a, one of the biggest groups right now. Uh, many uh, former Obama people you, you yeah, mentioned. two in particular. What do you hope to get out of them and by when? Expertise. Deliverable. Do they have a deliverable team? Oh, they, well, they have, I've got a couple binders um, of, of they, they give me weekly updates um, every Friday. In fact, today I'll receive... Um, my weekly updates um, uh, from the policy groups on key issues related to those topics that are of importance to the group, uh, articles that they've clipped, uh, new data, new facts, new research, best practices, um, which is the source of most of their work. I want to know what others are doing around the world, not just across the country. Um, and, uh, and number two, I, I want the benefit of expertise. I, I you know, the, Having um, some of these folks that were involved in the design of the ACA. Uh, that's what, why I'm, I had a wonderful conversation as an example, deep conversation. Why didn't Obama pursue the public option? And what the limitations were, and not just the political limitations, but the practical limitations. And then had a conversation, is that a pursuit in California? Forget one's position on single payer or not. Uh, is that a legitimate alternative policy uh, proposal? And so we run down that um, uh, uh, line of thinking. Others, uh, purely on what's working as an example, someone that was very involved in uh, and assessing uh, for a think tank uh, the three different single payer models uh, the beverage model, the, the Bismarck model, and the national health insurance model, and what distinguishes the three for profit, non profit, multi payer, and more traditional government sponsored healthcare. Each one of those is a variant on single payer. And how can each one of those inform us in California based on our unique circumstances? So, those are the kinds of things that sort of that kind of expertise that we're plugging in to our broader agenda. And then just folks that are there saying, all right, how do you contextualize a conversation around healthcare? What are the bills that were introduced that were not acted on? What were the bills that were rejected? What are the bills that we anticipate being introduced next year? How can we um, begin to prioritize those? How do we uh, focus on the administration uh, of those priorities, meaning best practices, uh, best people, who's doing, the, um, you know, who's excelling, who's falling short, all that. I, forgive me for being long-winded. I'm just basically expressing what the purpose of these groups are. Right. So, so what are they going, are they going to say, do you say, by okay, by February 1st, I'd like to have, what's your recommendation? Well, or what, what is the purpose the, of They're not transition uh, 
documents. Uh, I'm not getting ahead of myself. Right. I really is why, why I get every Friday I get updated. It's to really so inform this has me. Been going on for a while. Yeah, I mean that's why I can go in an ad board and talk to you about the the, the Bismarck model, which is Switzerland, not just Germany, et cetera, and, and talk about what Taiwan just did. Uh, so it informs me. It makes me more granular as a candidate. You lose folks. I mean, I don't think it's necessary in these campaigns because people tend to roll their eyes after your fifth or sixth point. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> it matters to me because I feel my eyes are directly on you. Thank you, buddy. That's yeah, nice. Why? Yes. But it's uh, but but I think it's important, and it allows me to hit the ground running. And what I hope to do, if I do win, is in a trans in transition, we'll expand those circles because trust me, people are going to demand that. Yeah. Uh, and but we're going to have we're going to have documents that are ready to be translated uh, into more actionable agendas, uh, and that is a huge advantage, I think, for the next governor. And I imagine, I hope that John Cox is doing the same thing. I don't know. Uh, the you said your first goal, your priority goal, is uh, early childhood edu- education. Yeah, and explain a little bit of what that is and how are you going to pay for it. So there's, I have sustainable goals and situational goals. Meaning, look, the, 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 clearly the first priority for the next governor is being prepared to submit a budget, which is going to be due I think January 10th, uh, and then make the very difficult decisions of assessing talent uh, and appointing key positions uh, to. Uh, these various agencies, and not just the horseshoe itself, uh, the governor's office. Uh, then sort of stacking priorities, and, and situationally those priorities have to be housing, homelessness, and health care. So those are three top priorities, housing, the housing crisis, the homelessness crisis, which is manifesting everywhere, and then the broader issues of health care, which again are the biggest driver of our budget. Uh, but the sustainable issue that I want to focus on with priority is the issue of zero to three. So I, I, I compartmentalize situational and sustainable uh, uh, priorities, uh, long-term, but priorities for long-term investment, and then the short-termism that's required of addressing the politics, not just the policy, around the immediacy of the crisis uh, that presents itself. The governor uh, touted how much he has in the reserve. It's, it's, a, it's a major accomplishment. Where are you on the priority of keeping, we will have another recession, we yeah. know that. What is, where are you on the priority? Top priority. The first thing I would do, if I was architecting a budget right now, first thing I'd do if there was surplus is statutorily set aside that 10% of the general fund uh, as the first act of any new budget, period. So that's, so you oh, would maintain exactly what the But that was me as mayor. I mean, yeah. most of the friction you refer to with those supervisors yeah. was around that. We did a rainy day right. reserve. I was trying to pay down debt. We did some pension you were mayor during, during the recession. Recessions, yes. I had to make tough choices. We were reducing, you know, work. I mean, it, none of this was easy. And so I'm, I haven't changed. I, I believe in that fiscal discipline. I believe in investing in the future. And I want to continue to pay off our debt. We paid off about $30 billion of our $35 billion of our wall of debt. Not all $5 billion needs to be paid off immediately, but I want to continue to knock that down. And I want to continue statutorily to get to that 10% of our, 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 our general fund reserve. And uh, you've also talked about restructuring the, our tax system. This is a more of a long-term Has to goal. Be done. How? What? What is the, in, in layman's terms? Does that mean are we taxing the wealthy more, raising the corporate tax, or some sort of increase Broadening, in sales tax? What does that mean? By some estimates, eighty-five percent of our economy is currently not taxed. So what happens? You have fifteen percent of the economy that is, is in some cases overtaxed. A regressive sales tax, the highest in the country, hurting poor folks uh, more than it is uh, wealthier uh, folks. You have income taxes for middle income earners that 
hit 9.3% and earnings a little over $50,000. I don't, I think that, um, that uh, is a burden on working folks. Uh, so I'd like to see if we can broaden that tax base, begin to attach a more rational approach to addressing the issue of volatility, which is the burden of having a tax base uh, that uh, is not broad, and look at what other states have done, which is exactly what our policy groups are doing. Uh, many other states have, have moved in this direction to broaden their tax base to address the issue of volatility. Uh, and I want to do this from this prism, uh, some experience. The worst thing a candidate for governor could do is say, here are the three taxes I want to raise. Here are the three taxes I want to lower. Here's the folks that are full of it, and they're not even invited around the table. You won't get people pissed off at you before you even I want at move least, in. Yeah. I want everyone to be angry after the yeah. product's done. And if everyone is angry, quite yeah. literally, that means everyone, everyone had to yeah. give something and add something. And, and basically, you know, everybody's got to be willing to have a conversation and acknowledge what currently exists and persists is not going to work and puts us at a competitive disadvantage. Vast majority of people, I think, are prepared for that engagement because I haven't met anyone that is not having that conversation privately. Everyone acknowledges our tax system needs to be overhauled. It's just everyone has a different perspective of what that means. That's a Prop 13 conversation for some folks. It's an oil severance tax for other folks. It's a service tax for other folks still. Uh, it is getting rid of uh, the income tax and uh, as we know it, making it as a simple flat tax. Everyone has a different opinion. Um, and my job is to try to incorporate as many ideas uh, together, but I want to mark it in this context. The question we need to ask around the table and answer is, what world are we living in? What are the trend lines to define this world? And how can our tax code uh, allow California to be more competitive in that environment? Everything is on the table, though, I would imagine. It has to be. I, I just think that's the, the best approach to getting. That's why we did healthcare in San Francisco. Everybody had to come around the table and uh, no preconceived notions. Um, yeah. One last question. Huh. I I don't understand your campaign motto. It's what? Courage for a change. Courage. What's wrong with for that? a change? I don't know. Yeah. It seems like is it? I'm not arguing I, for the status quo. No, I think no but it's, it seems like a, a courage. A, now, is it? It depends, I guess, where you put the pause. Yeah. Courage for a change. Yeah. Or courage for a change. I mean, it seems like you're dissing, you could be dissing someone well, I, else, like I, your fellow, your predecessors. Well, I was running, I'm running against, I was, I'm running against 27 people. Uh, and it was a point of contrast. And I can assure you, it is a point of contrast with my opponent today. I'm not running against Governor Brown. I'm not running um, uh, against anyone uh, except the, my opponent in the status quo in this sense. I am not satisfied with the affordability in this state. I'm not satisfied with what's happening in the middle class. I'm not satisfied with what's happening with homelessness. I'm not satisfied with what we're doing in early child education. I'm not satisfied that we have an economic competitive, uh, economic development plan or competitive framework to address the issues uh, of a nature, of the nature and change of our economy. I'm not satisfied with what's happening in higher education. So it does require courage for a change, uh, but that's not an indictment of current leadership. It's an indictment. Uh, on the current state of some of these stubborn issues that do require a courageous approach to problem solving, healthcare being an obvious proof point of that. Yeah. What, one last one. You, you uh, 36 days into your uh, first mayoral tor term, it was a, there was a huge, uh, uh, audacious, as you would say, uh, move <laughs> with the, uh, 
same-sex marriage. Should we expect a similar one? Uh, uh, sure. Like a February uh, surprise, if not? you will. But I don't know. Do you have I, anything? I get that. You have People anything ask you me that all the time. Is there anything I want to say yes. Um, so the pressure is mounting for, for I know, the like expectations yeah. are being set, aren't Dude, There's they? nothing planned. Though. Yeah, no, I have to under-promise and over-deliver. That, you're not scripting out your first ten plays. No, like, this like is the, not, like I'm not the team. Bill Walsh. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Willie Brown said he was the Bill Walsh of mayors. Of course he is. Of, of course uh, there's only one Bill Walsh yes. and one Mayor Brown. Uh, no, we're not doing that. We're, uh, But I am, I am, forgive, I keep referring in, in the context, I always use the word architect. We are architecting a prioritization of what we want to accomplish uh, some of that is constrained by the, the the sort of lazy punditry of the hundred days uh, but uh, I I resemble not, that remark I res- we all resemble it because we all are we all are in that prison we yes. all re- recognize it but 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 I, I I'm not going to be limited by that scope because I think frankly um, short-termism has been the enemy of so many of the solutions to the problems that this state faces. And we need to have a save and invest motto. And that may actually be the biggest change in the first 100 days, perhaps sort of disrupting this notion uh, of short-termism. All right. Gavin Newsom, thank you so much for being on this All <laughs> Political. For having me. All right. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. You can email me at jgarifoli at sfchronicle.com. You can hit me on Twitter at, at Joe Garifoli. And I'd like to thank the Lieutenant Governor, Gavin Newsom, for being on the podcast today. This was recorded, by the way, at his uh, campaign headquarters office in a very uh, nondescript uh, building in San Francisco. I'd like to thank uh, Fernando Diaz, the San Francisco Chronicle's managing editor for digital, for producing today's podcast. And remember... As Gavin Newsom once infamously said, whether you like it or not, it's all political.